Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, each week, we want to be able to have guests that excite you and really get you entrenched, but also engaged in life. And today is no option. We have an individual who is an expert on adventure. Well, we've never had that before. So we're going to find out soon what that means, as well as an expert on influence. So welcome, John Levy, to the show. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I hope you're ready to make life more exciting. Well, we always want to make it exciting, and of course, the stats, as an expert on life purpose myself, is just the stats are sad about how uh, few people really are fully engaged in life, and hopefully by the end of the show, you're going to give us all kinds of tips about how to change that and shift that. But before we get into that, John, and, you know, John is in the New York area, and so it's a beautiful place. I love New York City. Uh, John, how did you get to this place? What's your story? Where were you born? And just kind of your journey to be an expert in this field and helping ind- individuals really with behavioral science and these kinds of things. But uh, just tell us your story shortly. Uh, so I'm the son of two artists. My mom's a composer and conductor, and my dad's a painter and sculptor. And uh, I was, uh, my mom decided it would be a really smart move to travel during her third trimester. And so I was born while my parents were on vacation in a foreign country. I was born in Israel. Um, Wow. And (laughs) so what's the odds of that? Now, did they plan that or, or uh, was that on purpose or she just didn't think about that? All of my siblings were born in uh, the U S and so they, I think, to some degree, they knew that they were going to be on a long vacation. Uh, I don't know if they, I, I'm not sure if they really specifically realized the implications of uh, traveling in the third trimester. And uh, I ended up getting on my first flight at the age of three weeks. Uh, and I can only imagine that the rest of the passengers on that flight were less than enthusiastic. <laughs> about having a three-week-old baby next to them. Well, you Um, didn't worry about your own behavior at that time, so we're good to go. But wow, now, does that make you a citizen of Israel then? I'm a dual citizen. Yeah, yeah, I'm a dual citizen, and uh, uh, which isn't like the most useful citizenship in the world. I mean, I can go to a handful of places. I can go to Brazil without uh, getting a a visa, and I can go to uh, Russia and things like that, but it's like it's nothing that is life altering. Uh, but what ended up happening was I grew up mostly here in the US and uh, I was super geeky, like like Star Trek and computers. And back then in the 80s, it wasn't cool to like tech. Uh, there were no dot-com billionaires. There was no dot-com. Uh, and one day my school teacher, the, the head of our homeroom, uh, comes in and she says, surprise everybody, we're going to reassign everybody's seats. And uh, you each get to secretly submit two people you want to sit with and secretly submit two people you don't want to sit with. And, mm. uh, and so everybody did it. 
and a new seating chart was going to be made. And I unfortunately discovered two things that day. And one of them was that there was one student nobody wanted to sit with. And the second was that I was that student. Wow. I was totally heartbroken. And uh, I wanted to figure out how to connect and find friends. And so I, I tried all these things like watching the shows that they liked, but people saw through that because I really didn't care about Beverly Hills 90210 mm. or uh, I cared about Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, and so what ended up uh, happening was I realized that what I lacked in social skills, I made up for in my love of science. And over the years, I took an approach of understanding the science of human behavior uh, and applying that as a means to figure out how to build relationships and connect with people. John, if I may, how old were you at that time when that happened? I was, was made? I was 13 years old. I was in eighth grade and I have an August birthday. So I, uh, I, yeah, I was uh, 13 going on 14. You know, it's interesting, uh, John, just sorry to stop you there, but uh, for those people listening that, you know, most of the guests, that we have on have a story somewhere somehow where they've overcome that and so you just dedicated yourself to overcoming it so congratulations on that but that's also an encouragement to those of us that weren't always popular it was the same thing in high school and before the show we both mentioned that we um, deal with this issue of dyslexia even though you are a brilliant scientist that still was something well, that I'm might a have scientist whether I'm brilliant, but let's give that credit to like the Nobel laureates and so on. I, I have a lot of fun doing what I do, which I think is a, a great uh, and unique characteristic, but I'll, uh, I'll leave the brilliance to the Dan Kahneman. Okay, well, well, there we the go. So uh, continue on then. So you, you started to shift and say the science of understanding others. Uh, just mm -hmm. continue that journey and, and where it took you. Uh, and so I tried to develop models for understanding behavior. And when you're that young without the internet, you don't have many options of discovering answers. You can't just ask the question, you know, what causes people to like something? Uh, and so as I grew older, I came across more and more research. And um, at about the age of 27, 28, probably closer to 28, 29, I was sitting in a seminar and the seminar leader said something that really struck me. He said, the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I found this incredible because it would suggest that if I want to change my life, all I either have to change is the conversations that I have or curate the people around me more effectively. And so... I came across this brilliant research by uh, two scientists, uh, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And they were curious about the obesity epidemic. They were curious, is obesity something that spreads from person to person like a cold, or is it a percentage of the population situation like uh, an Alzheimer's or something like that? And what they found was startling. That let's say you had a friend who's obese, your chances mm -hmm. of obesity uh, increased by 45%. But what's even more startling is, are you, are you married? Or, I am. 
Okay. Your significant other who doesn't know your obese friend, their chances increase by 25%, their friends by 10%, and their friends by 5%, which means that we each have an effect four degrees out on our social circles. Wow. So there's all kinds of research that um, links people, and this is what you're citing, is that you really will be a reflection of your five closest friends. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that was basically. confirmed to that. Plus this whole idea that you like begets like. So if I'm hanging out with individuals who are obese, then that the propensity is nearly 50%, which is amazing. So you discovered that in your sort of mid to late 20s. And then yeah. what did you do with it? Uh, I got really curious to understand what causes the most influential people in our culture to engage and connect. Because the research by Christakis and Fowler showed that it, it doesn't only affect uh, in terms of weight gain, it actually affects us in terms of voting habits, smoking habits, uh, fitness, happiness, depression, all these things spread through our social networks. So I said, if I want to have an exceptional life, how do I surround myself with the most exceptional people in our culture? Hmm. And what we found was... Uh, what I did was I spent um, about a year modeling their behavior and really looking at which social pressures and which uh, experiences are unique to people who are highly influential. And once I modeled that and really understood it, I, I understood how to break through all of it. And wow. so with that research, I designed a secret dining experience. Twelve people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And what they find is that uh, they're sitting with Nobel laureates and Olympic medalists, editors-in-chief of major magazines, and uh, anybody you could possibly imagine that's really top of their industry. Mm. So it could be the founder of a popular startup or an executive from a major corporation. And I've hosted over 1,200 people across 140 dinners in three countries and nine cities. Uh, and it's been an absolute privilege. And so the purpose of those dinners, what are, you, what are you really determining or finding out or researching or discovering through that process? At, at the dinners, I'm not looking to discover anything. Uh, specifically. Now, inevitably you do because you meet exceptional people. The objective of the dinners is to bring together exceptional people such that it will impact the quality of their lives, their communities, and hopefully one day have a broader impact. Wow. And so is this something that uh, people can participate or contact you and say, listen, I'd like to be in one of these dinners, or is it invitation only that you orchestrate? Uh, it's invitation only. Uh, I'm, but I don't even pick who comes because I'm not an expert in most industries. I can tell you a bit about science. I can tell you a bit about technology, but uh, I actually lean on a group of experts uh, in across industry that um, really provide insight into who are industry leaders. Ultimately, wow, okay. I'm looking for people who have an ability to impact an industry either through their thought leadership, like a journalist or professor, 
position, if you're like the CEO, CMO, or something like that, uh, or previous success. If you won an Academy Award, you're recognized within your industry for your accomplishments. Mm. Or if previous success would be if you sold DoubleClick, people will still respect you even if you're not in the industry. Wow. And what a privilege for you, John, to be in these dinners. Uh, wow. Yeah, I think the, the biggest joke is that, uh, is that I would never be invited to my own dinner. <laughs> and so, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I'm really good at what I do, but I'm not, I'm not known outside of maybe like the marketing world. Like I'm not a household name. If somebody said, talked about my research, well, maybe because of my book, they would know who I mm-hmm. was, but I also didn't write, you know, uh, books like the subtle art of not giving a, you know, whatever. Uh, like my book didn't sell a million copies. So, not yet. <laughs> not yet. But uh, it also came out election day. So the chances <laughs> that it... There might have been a slight distraction on that marketing yeah. day. for, for it. But, it, but it did win an award for best design book of the year. I wish oh, I could awesome. say I designed it, but... <laughs> it, it, well, we'll uh, come to that book here in a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just want to back up a little bit. You said you were studying you know, these influencers and what they were doing. So for the purpose of the listeners, what were some of the insights you captured and you gained over that year of paying attention to others and what they were doing and not doing to have influence? So just share with the audience, what, were, what are some of the uh, in, insights that you have captured through this time around the power of influence and how people well, let's, achieve it? Let's figure this do? out together. All right. If, because I think it's much more helpful if we do it as a thought experiment. If you are incredibly influential in your industry, let's say, let's pick a, pick a big company, name it, anything you want. Anything that I want? Mm-hmm. Well, let's say American Airlines, just because I flew on them. Okay. Great. So you are the uh, chief operations officer of American Airlines. What is your day like? Busy. Yeah, busy. very busy, I'm sure. <laughs> right? They have to move a certain, probably a few hundred thousand souls a day and safely deliver them to their location, right? It's a big responsibility. If something mm-hmm. goes wrong, people get hurt or right. business get, uh, gets screwed up. It's a publicly traded company. There's a lot of pressure. So that means you're probably, how are you spending your day? Oh, uh, checking up on my people to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and the systems are running. That's definitely part of it. What else? Thinking about how to improve it. Sure. Um, making sure, well, I'm sure I probably have some meetings with other executives that I have to report to. Mm-hmm. So you're in and out of meetings all day. You're prepping for meetings or traveling to them. You're probably putting out fires. You are probably trying to prepare for the future. You probably have to be responsible to, on the effects of certain things on stock price. So you are very, very busy and there's a lot of pressure on you. What do people want from you? Because everybody wants something from you when you're at the top. What do they want? Well, they, well, they want results. They want you to be able to perform or answers or mm-hmm. responsiveness. So, yeah, so they, they want you know, your... somebody asks you, they don't want you to take a week to get back to them. Great. So they, they want your expertise. 
your access, right? Because you can access certain things that other people can't. That could be the CEO. That could be information. It could be critical clients. They want your money, right? You're constantly getting pitched for stuff, either through a donation, through an investment. They want your time, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they, and they want your social clout. Just being in the presence of the chief operations officer of American and walking down the halls in the office with that person gives you social status within the company or even if you're at an event with the person. So what I say is these people are out of steam. Everybody wants their social clout, their time, their expertise, their access, and their money. And so how do you actually break through that? And what will actually cause them to engage with you? Something that would serve them, something that would help them. All right. So they have to derive value. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you have a really phenomenal product, Mm -hmm. like a phenomenal product. And you're trying to get a meeting with them to show them your phenomenal product. Will they necessarily meet with you? Not unless they see value. Well, unless it meets a need. Even if it meets a need, will they meet with you? Maybe not if they don't have time or they don't have yeah. space. Yeah. So the, the issue is that even if you can derive value, that might not be enough. Mm. So Fair what enough. breaks through all of that? And your answer is? It's a much more complex uh, concept than one answer. It's about layering behavioral characteristics one on top of the other. And I think it's important to begin by understanding that human beings aren't logical. When Dan Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, I think it was 2001, I'm not positive, uh, he was the psychologist winning a Nobel Prize in the field of economics, unheard of. And that's because he and Amos Tversky were able to show that human beings weren't logical. Mm -hmm. And the realm of behavioral economics was born. And since we are not logical and we are primarily emotional and use our logic to justify behavior, then we need to appeal to people's emotions first and then to their logic. And I'll give you a perfect example. You could have the busiest period in your life, just completely inundated. Mm -hmm. But let's say you met somebody special, the type of person that gets you really excited, the type of person that you're looking at your phone constantly hoping that they text you. Are you going to put your phone away and ignore it? Probably not. No, because we're not logical. We're primarily emotional and then we justify our behavior. So if we were logical, We would never be caught or stuck in the loop of going to the to a store, standing at the checkout line and thinking, seeing a candy bar and then thinking that the future version of us would like that candy bar and to eat it. When in reality, five minutes later, you hate yourself for having eaten it. You were watching me last month, were you? Uh, (laughs) No comment. Those candy bars are at the checkout for a reason, right, John? (laughs) It's because they know that 
in those moments where you're you're not cognitively activated, right? You're you have a um, nothing's engaging you. Then it's that last minute consideration, like why why not? It's an add on item. Mm-hmm. So, in light of all of this, um, then we have to look at which behavioral characteristics are actually going to make the difference. And so the first thing is that we have to consider when everybody wants something from you, every time you get a message, you're going to be concerned that somebody's going to ask for something else. It's always looming there in the background. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense, yeah. So how do we break through that? Well, the first thing is you need to be generous and have no expectation of anything in return. And if you look at Adam Grant's research on Give and take. Yep. Yeah. Precisely. Then he was able to show that people who are the most generous have a tendency to be the most successful. Now, they can also be the least successful depending on how they manage their relationships, their time, and so on. Uh, so the key is to give and understand when you have to focus on yourself as opposed mm-hmm. to give without limit. Uh, the next characteristic is since the lives of highly influential people are very predictable, you want to focus on providing novel experiences. Because if you invite somebody very influential to another casino-themed fundraiser, they will go crazy. They just want nothing to do with it because they've been to a hundred of them. Mm. And so if you actually want them to engage, you have to offer something that is highly novel. You see, we're hardwired to respond to novelty. There's a section of the brain called the SNVTA, the Substantia Niagara Ventral Tagmental Area. And it will respond proportionately to how novel something is and will entice you to explore and understand. Which means that if I can offer you something novel enough, it's not a question of value, right? Mm. You helping me lose weight would be value. You letting me ride the first Tesla that was in space is novel. I will not go far out of my way for an exercise program, likely, but I will go far out of my way to hop on a private plane with somebody who's super cool to do something wild because it's novel. It's Mm. unique. Third characteristic is uh, curation. The most influential people in our culture, who do they spend their time with? So explain that more. Meaning if, if, if you're an executive at a company, who do you spend your time with? Other executives, usually. Uh, actually, not even. You're usually spending most of your time with your employees, the people who report to you. Fair enough. Um, and so if you can curate an environment or experience where they can be with people at their level, especially from diverse backgrounds, that is highly valuable to them. And if you look at how much people spend to go to TED or similar conferences, Patau, stuff like that, PopTech, then you can see that if something is well curated, people make the time. For them, that's the value. 
So this is around um, getting around peers or even individuals who are in front of them that they look up to, that they can hang out with. Precisely. Um, so those are the basic characteristics. There's a lot more that goes into it, uh, but it would take far longer than we have time on the podcast to delve into every aspect. Well, that's why they're uh, going to get your website at the end of the show. Now, this just remind us of those steps again for the listeners just to take note of them, to solicit uh, those. So it's not steps so much as design characteristics, right? Okay. You, you have to give without any expectation of anything in return. You have mm-hmm. to provide a highly novel experience, and then you have to create a uh, environment that's highly curated around people that they would want to value by hanging out. Okay, mm-hmm. awesome. And, and, and so I, I want to move away from this idea of value. Although I do believe all interactions are exchanges of value, um, it's very easy to fall into the trap in, of hearing value and hearing business. You having a conversation with the foremost expert on ISIS is fascinating. It has zero impact on your life. Mm. You are not going to change your behavior. It will have no effect on your income. It will literally have zero effect on anything, but it's fascinating. So do you gain value from it? Yes. Would I describe it as value? Unlikely. I'd describe it as engaging. Mm -hmm. An experience. Yeah. experience. So with that, with your influence, one of the other areas that you're an expert about is this whole idea of adventure. So are you linking novelty with adventure and oh, this sure. concept about, you know, how can people be more engaged in life? And, you know, all the research we talked about in the beginning of the show is that most people are not. So let's transition into this other area that you have um, focused on in your life. As far, by the way, how did you get into all of this moving at 27, 28, and then becoming an expert in this field and serving others? What were you um, doing when you were 26, 27, like for a job before you moved into this? I was uh, working in digital strategy and I uh, was eventually ended up at Rodale, which is Men's Health, Women's Health, Runner's World, like all the ab covered magazines. Great. And uh, And I had a team of library scientists that worked, a research scientist, I guess you'd say. I I actually don't know what the technical term. They have degrees in library sciences, so they're PhDs. And they they worked for Rodale and they provided all the magazines with, uh, with the latest research that they could use for articles. And I worked in their in-house agency, so I worked with outside brands. And every day that I have a new client, I would have the research team pull the latest data on a topic. So give me the most important 40 studies done on weight loss in the past year. And then I would take those insights and look at how to develop strategies that would help the brands that we work with. And I quickly realized I was very good at applied science. A lot of strategies that people develop are based on intuition or clever ideas. But that's not necessarily how human beings work or what will draw a reaction. Instead, I would develop strategies based on 
actual research. So the clients tended to be a lot happier about it. So it wasn't just like statistical data that about the way that people engage with ads. It was data like Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler that we could say, okay, if you want to help obese people, let's find the hotspots of obesity and this is how we target them. And these are the systems that we can use to actually get them to engage. And as I realized that I had a knack for it, a well-known neuroscientist who had attended one of the dinners suggested that I go into research and we started doing research together. And so we did cool. the largest study on mobile dating uh, ever done, I think, 431 million. And we did one on coupons and you know all this fun stuff. Well, so, well. Well, people can contact you about the mobile dating uh, information. <laughs> sure. So I'm sure there's some insights there. So, well, well that's fascinating, uh, John. So with that transition, where did this whole idea of the study of adventure start coming out? Where, um, did, where did that start to sort of pop its head out for you? Uh, pretty early on, actually, because I was so unpopular and my heroes were Indiana Jones and Ferris Bueller and all these other iconic film and television uh, characters, I wanted to understand why they got to live such exciting lives. What is it that they embodied that Mm -hmm. I could learn from? And people would tell me that, oh, it's just, you know, it was written that way. But if it was just that, if it was purely that those characters had it written that way and the rest of us are just living life randomly, then we would all have similarly exciting lives and we don't. Some people live far more exciting lives than others. So what is it that they do that they don't even necessarily know that they do? And so I began modeling their behavior the same way that I modeled uh, influence. And what I discovered is that there are four characteristics or stages to an adventure that when you uh, set them up properly, uh, life becomes far more exciting. And they are established where you put the right elements in place. Mm-hmm. Push boundaries where you cross some kind of social, physical, or emotional boundary. Increase where you maximize the emotional value of the environment that you're in. And continue where you choose to either loop back through the process or end with style. And so I called it the epic model of adventure. And uh, my book is called The 2 a.m. Principle. Uh, and the 2 a.m. Principle is that nothing good happens after 2 a.m. except the most epic experiences of your life. Meaning you either should have just called it and gone to bed or you should uh, keep going and you had Mm. some crazy night out that will be worthy of the history books. Uh, And so I found all these behavioral characteristics and I layered them in and I combined them with kind of crazy stories. Like I got crushed by a bull in Pamplona and almost died. I, uh, what else happened? I battled Kiefer Sutherland in Drunken Jenga and uh, got invited to his family Thanksgiving, but he forgot. So when I showed up, he was like, who are you? (laughs) Uh, Okay, there we go. I wanted to prove that you could have fun anywhere in the world. So I went to Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, population 2,500 for New Year's. And the police, the state troopers actually, stopped us not believing that anybody would optionally go from New York to Dillsburg for New Year's. They thought we were probably like running drugs or something. And uh, so they detained us for two hours. Um, And then it just got crazier and crazier from there. Uh, I convinced 
didn't even need to convince. I invited and she agreed. Uh, but the woman behind the duty-free counter at Stockholm Arlanda Airport agreed to travel with me, a complete stranger, after 10 seconds of speaking uh, and quit her job to do it. Wow. Uh, so it's complete insanity. But the <clears throat> principles that are in there are all science-backed and they they apply to anything from a family trying to make their vacation more fun to a 20-something trying to make date night more interesting to, uh, you know, some teenager who wants to just, you know, seize the day. So it's a lot of fun. Pretty cool. So what can you share with us in the next few minutes that we have left, John, around you know, bringing more excitement and adventure into our lives. I'm, I'm just this person on the street. Uh, I don't necessarily have the connections that you have, but I want to be able to shift my life to be more exciting, more adventurous, being so able let to me, connect to that. Let me say that I don't even have the connections that I have. And what I mean by that is that uh, in the U.S., I can do certain things that most people don't have access to. But if I'm in a small town, like when I went to Dillsburg or mm-hmm. I went to a, uh, or I go to a foreign country, I don't have any contacts or I very rarely do. Um, so I have to start from scratch every time. Now, mind you, I'm not going to say that I'm impoverished or something like that. I have a safety net. So if something goes wrong, uh, I can afford to go to the hospital or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, but everything I tend to do tends to be low cost and high social engagement. And so uh, let me begin by defining what an adventure is so that you know if you're having one. And the first thing is that an adventure is an experience that is one, exciting and remarkable, meaning it's actually worth talking about. From an anthropological perspective, we shared our knowledge through an oral history for millennia. If something's not remarkable, it's not culturally significant. If it's not worth talking about, it doesn't get shared. Two, it possesses adversity and or risk, preferably perceived risk. Now, your brain processes an imminent danger differently than like height, Mm -hmm. but the physical response is almost identical. And that means that you can always have something to overcome without being in direct peril. I made that mistake when I went toe-to-toe with a bull. I got crushed and ended up in the hospital and I still suffer from problems. Yeah, not recommended. I grew up on the farm. They're pretty strong, John. They're 1,500 <laughs> you discovered. Yeah. You discovered. Uh, and then the third characteristic is it brings about growth. The person you are at the end is distinct from the person who started. Right? If you look at any great hero's journey, you see that they are fundamentally changed from the experience. And that's what you're looking for from an adventure is that you grow as an individual. And so if you want to live a more exciting life, one that really engages you, the key is to constantly be on the edge of your comfort zone. Because the real gift of adventure isn't the crazy stories, or even in many cases, the people you'll meet. It's that you get to redefine who you are because long past the time those memories fade and you stop talking to those people you met, 
you'll still be a better person. And that's what I believe the real opportunity is. Mm. To get outside of the comfort zone, whatever that might be for you. So, John, in your studies of others, what do you think are the reasons that many people don't do this, that their lives are without excitement and adventure? What, what is it that they, that you I have discovered? There, I think that there's a few reasons. One is that if you're in a small town, uh, there is fundamentally less taking place. So it becomes a more generated act. You have to fundamentally be the one creating the experience. And that's a lot tougher. I'm not going to say that it's not, right? Mm. Uh, And that means that you have to make more of an effort to connect with people, to create activities, to do research, to find things that are exciting. And that might be that your activity goes from like going to a very cool restaurant that's the hip new spot here in a major city to going to your local bar. But this time we're going to add some constraints like you can't pay for your own drinks and you can't tell anybody why. And so Mm -hmm. now it turns into a game and the night becomes more exciting. Gamification of life. Yeah. Uh, Before that was even a word uh, online. So how you create um, new opportunities and examples of that. Awesome. What else could you add, um, John, as far as, okay, I'm a listener and I want to get into this more exciting and adventurous life. What, what do you say to me? To, how do I get started? What, what so do there, I do? There are two things that I would say. One is that it's, how exciting your life is in direct proportion to two things. One, how uncomfortable you're willing to be. So you have to know that it's going to be uncomfortable and be willing to put up with it. It's not comfortable. Like I dropped myself off in a foreign country where I didn't have a place to sleep, didn't know anybody, didn't uh, speak the language, had done no research, and either I was going to convince a stranger to put me up for the night or I was sleeping on the street. That was uncomfortable. Mm. The uncertainty... And a park bench isn't that comfortable either. The second is, but nobody should be doing the stuff that I do. I mean, maybe some people should, I don't know. But (laughs) that's not a starting point. Uh, The second is, it's also in proportion to your willingness to say yes. And most of us say yes to things that we've done before. And rarely do we say yes to like the things that sound completely unappealing or unfamiliar. And so... I like to say yes to everything Um, just to experience it and see what it's like. I have personal like boundaries. For example, I have no interest in drugs, so that's not something I say yes to. But uh, I mean, as long as it doesn't cross your personal boundaries, then why not? Mm. I mean, if you... Wasn't there a movie that Jim Carrey did around he had to say yes to everything? The Yes Man, I think. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, I, I never saw it, but yes. I would encourage you to see it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so there's, I think that those are two fundamentally important things. The other thing is that you need to be really respectful of if you're an introvert or an extrovert and your, your capacity for novelty. All of us have a different capacity. And just because I really push hard for the new things doesn't mean that that's what you're going to enjoy. 
Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't give you an excuse not to grow. It just means that you have to be respectful of your pace and where you want to grow. So it might mean that if you're a bit more of an introvert, your adventures are less in big groups and more in small groups of like three with your closest friends. Or it might mean that you go hiking by yourself or something like that. I don't know. You have to be respectful of also the safety of what you're doing. But these are all fair considerations. And I'm not here to tell you what's right for you. I'm just telling you that there's a clear mechanism at play. And that's the 2 a.m. principle. And so if you're really open to exploring the possibilities of how life could be more interesting and exciting and engaging, then go for it. There's so much out there to see. And people are just so enriched by doing it. So, John, uh, just share your book title and where they can get a hold of it for the listeners. Uh, The book is called The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. Uh, The physical book is die cut. So you can actually, there's a spinner on it, which gives you challenges to do. And then uh, you can pick it up literally anywhere, like Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. Amazon's probably the easiest because they'll just ship it to you. Uh, But it's available in Audible. It's available in, I'm sure, iBooks and all those other things. Great. And then if they want to learn more about the work you do, John, what, uh, where would they, you send them to kind of learn more and maybe connect with you? So you can reach, uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at John Levy, TLB, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y, T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy. I'm also, I have a website, johnlevytlb.com. And then finally, I have a, uh, you can, also find my podcast at Influencers Podcast. And if you want to know about the company, Influencers, where I do consulting work for brands uh, to figure out how to engage their most important customers and uh, apply behavioral science, that's influence.rs. It spells influencers. So influence.rs. Great. Well, thank you, John. So, John, to, to wrap up the show today, what just tidbits of wisdom that you haven't already shared would you encourage the audience with as we depart today? So there's this very funny characteristic of human behavior called the peak end rule, which states that human beings don't process the duration of pleasure or pain. What we remember are the peaks of experiences and how they end. So one of the things that's really important for me is that I'm not especially concerned about how an experience begins. I do a lot of events and sometimes at the beginning it's a total mess uh, and people are unhappy. What I make sure though is that there are a few peak experiences that are extraordinary and then that we end on a really positive note. And that's what people will truly come away with. Because if you go on a three hour long date and you're head over heels for a person and as you're saying goodbye, they look you in the eyes, you're about to lean in for the kiss and then they say the most awful thing you have ever heard, you will remember that date as three hours of terrible rather than a great experience. Uh, So uh, I will leave you with this as um, as my final note, that the scope of our lives is in direct proportion to how uncomfortable we're willing to be. So in light of that, I wish you an incredibly uncomfortable life 
and all of the blessings that come with it. Well, John, thank you very much for taking the time to be on our show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen and listeners, uh, you've been listening to John Levy. And I just want to encourage you that, you know, life really does have excitement for those of us that take the steps to do it. It does require action. It does require responsibility. But there are steps for you. So get John's book. And uh, I don't stay up past 2 a.m., but obviously I'm going to now because we're going to have these experiences that we're going to be doing. And engage life as well as pay attention to the information that we talked about at the beginning of the show as far as influencing others. As always, if you like what we're doing, we thank you for liking the show or passing it on and sharing it with others. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.